welcome to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. This is Andy Robinson. I have with me Rachel Washburn, Peter Chur, and Major General Spider Marks. Today, we're going to talk about NATO, Russia, and trade war. Rachel, can you lead us off? Thanks, Andy. Uh, General Marks, I pose the first question to you. It seems like things worked out in Brussels. You know, we were all a little bit worried going in um, that there was going to be some tension, and uh, it seems like we're leaving Brussels a lot more optimistic. Can you talk about how important and relevant NATO's mission is today and why it's so integral for our national interest to stay engaged and invested? Thanks, Rachel. And again, Andy, thanks very much. Um, Yeah, NATO is essential to not only the security of Europe and clearly what I would call a recidivist behavior being demonstrated by Putin trying to bring back the Soviet Union, but really it is a bulwark against uh, aggressive activities globally, and it really remains the model for how nations in partnerships and in alliances can find common interests, common goals, and can work together to achieve some amazing successes. Look, it was created, NATO was created on the heels of World War II. The original 12 members have now grown to 29 members, especially since the fall of the Soviet Union uh, in 1991. And so this is really quite an amazing example of how to do it right. What our president is doing is challenging some of the existing behaviors within NATO, and I think it's a good idea to challenge that. Now, I grew up in a school where you chewed in private and you praised in public. So I'm a bit curious about the president's MO of poking a number of our allies in the eye in a very public way. But the relationship is strong enough, tough enough, it's resilient enough, we're agile enough, we're stable enough in terms of our standardization procedures that I think it's going to withstand all of that. So you're exactly right, Rachel. We entered into this. There was quite a deep breath. Folks were concerned that everything might go off the rails really quickly. Seems like everything's going to be fine. But it's important for us, again, to follow up on the heels of this summit and to start scoring points in terms of what the key challenges that were identified, the objectives that were uh, embraced that all nations need to uh, kind of address moving forward. And the key one among that, obviously the top top line is the 2% expenditure of GDP by each nation uh, aspirationally by 2024. But that's, that's a going-in proposition. In other words, all nations have got to start moving in that direction. But my view of it is money is fungible. It's not strictly the dollar amount that's allocated to defense. It's what those dollars go to. So it's important that we look at it and we look at it through a functional lens and a a military capability lens, not just a spreadsheet lens. Back to you. Sir, I think the funding is particularly interesting. I know you've commanded alongside our NATO allies. You've deployed with them and fought alongside them. Can you quickly go over how NATO was actually funded and then also what it's like to you know, go to war along with our NATO allies and what that command structure looks like and how it functions operationally? Yeah, great question. Let me start with the second part of your question first. The beauty of committing our forces in combat or to exercises or deployments in an effort to prevent combat with our NATO partners is really an exercise in trust and confidence 
and it really demonstrates the benefit of establishing procedures, partnerships, and within that, working through all the details. When you go to war, when I went to war with NATO partners, there was a level of trust that you didn't have when you were creating a pickup team and trying to solve the problem that way. NATO brings standardization. NATO brings similar values. NATO brings a focus that's been in place and has been tested over the course of close to 70 years. So there's a confidence and a trust that you have when you employ with an organization that's been around for a while. To the first part of your question, bear in mind, NATO is an organization of individual states. So those individual states have to be able to address their own defined national security interests. NATO does a very good job of helping those nations achieve those very precise definitions because there are many challenges that all the nations and partners within NATO share in terms of national security interests and challenges. So individual nations must come forward. I, I use as an example the very newest member of NATO is Montenegro. It joined last summer. It has been a part of this incredible storied organization for 12 months, and it's probably its leadership within that tiny little country, which has a very troubled past, a part of the you know, former Yugoslavia and the breakup of the Balkans 20 years ago, Montenegro now is standing on its own feet and it's looking at NATO, and I'm sure they take a deep breath every day and they pinch themselves and they go, my goodness, we're a part of this organization. What a phenomenal sense of comfort we get from that. But at the same time, they have to stand up, move forward, meet the commitments that they signed up to. So they've got obligations, and they have to be able to meet those obligations. But then you roll up all those commitments of all those 29 partners. That equals NATO. So I, I think what I'm really saying is NATO doesn't fund itself. Individual nations become a part of NATO, and they individually commit um, per the agreement to ensure that they meet the standards as prescribed by the NATO organizational charters. Peter, in your piece this week, uh, trade war, not a trade kiss, uh, you acknowledged that some of the challenges potentially faced at the NATO summit may have ramifications for our trade war with China. What are your thoughts now that we're post-NATO summit? I think we have to be very careful that we've kind of started to hold ourselves to a much lower standard in terms of how we treat our allies, whether it was at the end of the G7 summit, or it was a little bit at the end of this, um, his first day, President Trump's first day in England. We now seem to accept that this behavior, as Spider mentioned earlier, that used to be done behind the scenes is now being done in front of the scenes. I'm not sure whether that is really building the trust that we need to see the follow-through and the long-term success of these deals. So that's something I'm watching very carefully to see whether Europe really does follow up or we are getting more and more placated with no one really willing to follow up and do the heavy lifting because they don't feel like we're truly treating them as partners across many issues, not just on the tanks. Yeah, and you know, I would also say, Peter, to that really good point, is that when you have the process being played out in daylight, you lose sight of the product that is being delivered. So we spend more time looking at people dribble and pass, and we're not looking at how many baskets folks are going. That's the challenge that we have, is that we're, we're moving down a path that is now playing to what I would call those Purian interests, those visuals that we want to routinely see, you know, things going sideways, where we see 
the fire, we, we see the plane crash. What we're not looking at is the thousands and thousands and thousands of fires that are prevented and thousands and thousands and thousands of airplanes that land safely and perfectly every day. And we're focusing in on those challenges because we've chosen and we now have a dynamic where those things are in front of it and we've chosen to focus in on the process, not the product. And, sir, your perspective on how trade intersects with national security you know, your experience, how often were economic relationships with nations particularly vital to the sort of foreign policy dynamic that is sometimes separate from the economic uh, elements and relationships we have with, with different nations? Like I think Germany and Russia is a good example of where they have an important economic partnership, yet Germany, you know, is a strong NATO ally. What, what, is, what are your thoughts on that sort of dynamic? from a military perspective. That really is the driving force behind the employment of the military element of power. Clausewitz taught us that warfare is politics by other means. And in order for us to achieve a safe and stable world, uh, the only way it's gonna be safe and stable is if you can promote the general welfare, which means you can have economic and commercial intercourse as a matter of routine. And the only way that you're gonna have, as Peter has reminded us, business following the flag, the only way business will follow the flag is if we've achieved security. If the flag is deployed and security and stability within a particular region is achieved, the business will take the risk to engage because they see within that emerging from an opportunity from a period of chaos is a great opportunity economically and in terms of the marketplace. So every time I deploy, I understood emphatically that I had to pay attention to my task, that the larger desired outcome was a stable environment, friendly to business and commerce, so that those on the ground, the local citizens, the local residents, would have an opportunity to realize something beyond what they had been forced to live with before the deployment, before the arrival of U.S. forces or international forces to try to achieve a level of stability that the local population had never seen before. The desired outcome is we want to help change your life in a way that you want it changed, which really provides access to the marketplace in a more fulsome way. It was very clear to me every time, but you don't want to put the cart in front of the horse. You got to understand that this is the direction we're heading, but as a soldier, I have to attend to my business, which is to apply appropriate pressure and influence to achieve those desired outcomes. I think those are all great points, General, and I think that gets lost a lot is just the importance of, you know, the military and stability in terms of helping commerce. We're certainly seeing that in a broad swath of the world right now. Some of that instability is, you know, hurting the global economy and maybe our increased presence and efforts, and if we have time to focus, it can be, you know, very good for business. You know, the Koreas, for example, if that can ever truly get put together or resolved in a better way, in the current situation, that could just be a huge boon that the global economy and the U.S. would benefit as well. That's a, that's a marketplace that, again, we've, we've discussed this before. That's a marketplace. The northern part of the Korean Peninsula is a marketplace that could be as much a miracle as the south was following the Korean War. I mean, it's just absolutely eye-watering what, what's been achieved in South Korea since 1953. The same thing can happen over probably an accelerated amount of time, a reduced amount of time in the north, 
if we could achieve the conditions where business would, in fact, invest and put themselves at risk and plant themselves in the north in a way that just opens up new doors. But there's always been this marriage between commerce and national security, um, and you have to play it to your great advantage. And that, and that, again, was played out this past week in, in Germany, where the president was very critical, as he should have been with Angela Merkel and the sweetheart deal that she struck with Putin for natural gas coming through Ukraine, and uh, Germany's got a, got a great deal. Where you go, okay, I get it. You're looking after your own national interests, but you're also looking after your own national interests against the primary reason that you exist as a partner of NATO, which is to be a bulwark against recidivist behavior that Russia seems to be dis- displaying. So you got, you got to balance all that. I mean, the, the president raised his hand and said, wait, I'm going to call you out on this. And the world, again, just kind of took a deep breath, sucked it in a little bit, and went, wow, is, is that appropriate? And I'd say, well, I don't know that I would have done it publicly, but I think the point is completely legitimate. You know, there is going to be a marriage between the desire for national security and, and commerce. Not everybody's going to like it. Yeah, that is something I think that is influencing both the trade wars and everything else we're looking at is we've almost, I think, become too quick to expect instant gratification and not willing to endure maybe a little bit of suffering or agony to get there. You know, there's hard truths out there, and we look at trade. We have probably had a bad deal for a period of time, and one of the questions, again, is do we have the resolve to fight and make maybe a better deal for ourselves, or will we be forced too quickly to capitulate because we've got midterm elections coming, so we want a quick win, and we behave very differently as a nation and the corporations in our nation versus China, where you're really dealing with one and the same. And so I think these are going to be interesting dynamics is how willing we are to have those tough conversations and then stick to them rather than kind of constantly searching for that instant, you know, sugar high, which seems, as you just said with Germany, kind of what they got with Russia. I love the, I love the term, the sugar high. You're, you're exactly right. I've described our society as the microwave society. You know, we want to push a button and bam, we've got a solution within 30 seconds. Um, That really has defined us as opposed to the old school method of maybe starting a fire very, very slowly, letting it reach a certain temperature and then slowly letting the water boil. Yeah, that's that's our challenge. And it's being exacerbated, let's be frank, it's being exacerbated because this president, not inappropriately, over the course of less than two years in office, has moved the dial in so many different areas in terms of national security, the state of our economy, unemployment, et cetera, that we're paying attention to the process. People get upset with the process. Yet look at the scoreboard. We're scoring some incredible points, and we've done it over an incredibly accelerated time. You know, is that sustainable? To your very point, Peter, are we going to be able to sustain this? And that's if I were uh, aggressively in the marketplace, I'd want to make sure that I had a sustained element. You know, is there just, am I seeing volatility and not pricing it in, or am I looking at my, the conditions and not seeing volatility and seeing stability and seeing sustained effort, and I can act accordingly? And that's where I would demure to you in terms of how uh, industry is responding to what I think are some amazing successes that we've achieved over a short amount of time. I think, one, we are just starting to see the real impact of all the tax cuts, both at small businesses, medium-sized and medium-sized businesses as well, or, you know, kind of the bigger macro level, that economic data is starting to improve. It took some time, I think, for the tax cuts to, you know, really work their way into the economy. So we've seen a lot of good. And my concern right now would be that we're not hitting a wall or anything like that. There's still a lot of good going on with the economy, 
but all of a sudden we've created a lot of uncertainty, not just because we're engaged with China and trade, but if we're engaged with China and trade, with NAFTA and trade, with Europe on trade, with Europe on NATO, any number of things. And you wonder sometimes if we've bitten off more than we can chew. And that, I think, is causing some degree of uncertainty in the market. There's a lot of optimism. The tax cuts were a phenomenal change. You know, large, large tax cuts. They are changing the landscape of business. They've made it, you know, much better for small business. When you look at things like the Small Business Optimism Index, it's at all-time highs. So a lot of good has gone on. But now, all of a sudden, we're running into this little bit of concern where lack of certainty is hard to deal with as companies have to figure out where to put plants, what they want to do, who's going to win this. So I expect a little bit of slowdown while these things play out. If we get good deals, you know, it could be off to the races and it could be you know, a phenomenal couple of years. But it's going to be key. Do we get the good deals? Do we take too quickly to get easy deals? Do we look good coming into the midterm elections but then have some similar problems after? It's very uncertain to me. I think that's how markets are reacting. I think right now we're a little bit on the sugar high again of the hope that things can work out quickly, and I certainly hope they do. I'm less certain that it will. I think there's more resolve by the president to have a longer-term fight with China than the market wants. Again, what, the, what is good for the market and what might be good for the people of America down the road aren't necessarily the same thing. And if he's fighting for what might be good for the American people down the road, there's going to be a little bit of turmoil for markets near term. You know, Peter, I, um, I two things real quickly. First of all, uh, again, I'm smiling here. Is small business optimism index a real term? I never, I never heard that before. Um, the SBOI is that what it's called? I think it's done by the uh, NFIB or something. I'd have to look up what that stands for, but I think it's a <laughs> small business community. I, I love actually. it. I love it. I love it. Well, I hope there's optimism, and so in that. In that, let me ask you, Peter, about Brexit. You know, the EU is the world's largest trading, quote, conglomerate. And with the departure of the U.K., does that really affect the EU and its aggregate numbers? Does it kind of challenge it, or is that really just kind of a blip on the screen and everything will be essentially remain the same? But I think more importantly is the president has called out Prime Minister May for potentially moving down the path of a soft Brexit as opposed to a hard Brexit. And now there's a concern that it may be a soft Brexit, which means there's still some entanglements with the EU in terms of market presence. I, I, I would love to get your thoughts on what does that really mean? And more importantly, how will we see it manifested? Is it going to, is it going to be a significant market impact based on how Brexit is executed and how the United States responds to that? Have you got some kind of a notion of what that might look like? Yeah, I think it's going to be far less transparent than people get concerned about. I think one thing, again, we've got to come back to is when we're looking at these nations, so we've got individual nations, but most of the companies that are big in those nations are big multinational global companies. I worked for banks, and I had multiple hats. I would work for the U.S. Securities Arm. I would work for the European bank part. And you did what business was most effective out of which entity, so I think you'll see the same thing. We were talking to some customers this week in Houston, uh, large corporations, and they're watching this, but they have the ability to shift production here or there. They, they've got a lot of leeway in working within the rules. So I think at some point we still kind of view these negotiations as very nationalistic, as those are simple and easily used to find borders. But when you look at the companies that are going to be attracted, they all have divisions across the globe, multiple divisions. 
they will probably find ways around the, you know, immediate impact. So I think that softens the blow. And probably a little bit again, what you've been talking about earlier is everyone gets focused on these headlines and the nasty comments, and the real result isn't going to be anywhere near as bad as some of the headlines would like to suggest. So I think it's going to be able to be navigated. There's going to be some winners and losers, but I don't see Brexit in particular as this huge event that's going to change the shape of the world. Sir, uh, if I may ask you to predict the somewhat unpredictable, what do you see uh, being discussed as President Trump and Putin meet next week? Well, that's the uh, yeah, that's where uh, again, much like the summit in Singapore with Chairman Kim, um, our president has chosen to meet with President Putin separately in a room, uh, except with. Their interpreters. I would I would hope that the president will address in order our presence and his presence in Syria. Syria still is a focal point of the world's attention. Um, a lot of activities. It is really true proxies. We now see the challenge of uh, Shia and Sunni confrontation again, which is ageless, timeless, and probably will never be fully resolved. But it's playing itself out. And within that chaos, we see a whole bunch of other players like Turkey, the Kurds, forces going against Assad, Assad's forces, ISIS. we got Russia there. we got the U.S. there. I mean, it really is a flashpoint where things can go sideways in a heartbeat. And you talk about an unpredictable environment and a risk-filled environment. I would hope they'd talk about that and what the next steps can look like. And it's, in, in my mind, it's very clear. In Syria, Assad's got to go away, and as long as Russia and the United States can have a conversation about what the next, you know, who follows Assad, um, we might be able to have some progress. Um, that should be a topic. Clearly, that should be a topic. Um, also, cyber espionage. You know, we know Russia got involved in our election to try to influence the outcome of our election back in 2016. They will do it again in 2018. We can state that with certainty, emphatically. And what are we doing about it? I'm confident our um, cyber command is actively engaged in a very covert way to try to influence Russia and dissuade Russia from getting involved and making it painful for Russia, not not through conversation, but through activities that make it painful for Russia to do that. Plus, we can respond asymmetrically. We just don't have to respond exclusively in the cyber domain. Uh, I also hope they talk about Ukraine. Look. The 2014 annexation of Crimea was criminal. It was uh, the act of a tyrant, and the world let it occur. So we can't put that genie back in the bottle. Uh, Crimea is going to remain a part of Russia. Uh, Ukraine's not going to get it back. But what we could do with uh, very open discussions and have Ukrainian leadership present in the room at some point and say, look, I think it's probably the best thing to do right now is uh, if Ukraine continues not to be a member of NATO, maybe that's counterintuitive, but have Ukraine become the eastern version of Switzerland, keep it neutral. Look, Russia has its pipelines going through Ukraine that lead into Europe. Europe absolutely is buying natural gas from from Russia uh, until that gets turned off. It's not going to get turned off, and you don't need to immediately confront Russia with the prospect of losing access access to its pipelines going through Ukraine if Ukraine were to raise its hand and say, look, 
We want to be a member of NATO, and we don't want Russia interference in any way in our sovereignty. I don't think that would be a good idea right now. There are other ways to approach that. So Ukraine should be a topic, and maybe the future of Ukraine as a separate and independent nation not affiliated directly with NATO would be a very, very good topic to have. And clearly, uh, the concern that I have is that as you look at Brexit and as you look at challenges in the EU, as you look at the challenges with immigration, and you look at uh, the activities as established by Russia historically over centuries, is they stir things up and they're near abroad. Those countries in those areas directly on their borders, uh, they want to intentionally create chaos so that everything else that happens in Russia gets, you know, migrates further down on the scope that every that the world sees because the world is dealing with challenges on the near abroad, which is exactly what happened in Crimea a few years ago. My concern is that you could see the, the dissolution of the EU. And if, you know, the United States of Europe is far more powerful and safe than the separate states of Europe, and history has demonstrated that. And if, and if it became increasing, if we had more Brexit-like exits from the EU, We'd have a problem because everybody, we internationally would have a problem because everybody would start striking their own deal with Russia. A united Europe looks to the West, primarily the United States, the NATO alliance, as uh, the foundation of their values, their ethos, and how they want, and the principles that guide them as a unified continent, as a unified Europe. Separate states within Europe will start to strike deals with the East, and that's Russia. That's the last thing we want to see happening. Going forward, I would hope that on Monday in Helsinki, the president of the United States is very emphatic with President Putin. says, look, we can, there are ways we can cooperate. Let's be frank about these areas. Let's just not have a bunch of platitudes. But let's have this tough conversation behind closed doors so that we can have a cooperative arrangement going forward and agree that there are areas where we will never be able to fully embrace or see eye to eye. And clearly, the, the, big, the big elephant in the room there is going to be nuclear proliferation, denuclearization as an aspirational goal, the threat of nuclear holocaust, primarily as a result of accidents is what is most troubling. But the world has had a number of, quote, rational actors that have developed nuclear weapons, and we haven't gone, to, gone down the path of a nuclear exchange ever. I'm not confident that if we just rely on the rationality and reasonableness of man that we're going to avoid a problem with nukes going forward. Denuclearization and the reduction of that threat is essential, and it's existential globally. Those are the topics that I would hope our president raises very firmly and very precisely with President Putin. Peter, do you have any follow-up to that? No, I think markets are kind of taking this all with stride. I think we've kind of now got into a routine where we expect some good news to come out of it, but probably nothing, you know, concrete to be done. So we're watching, and we'll see if there's something unusual that comes out of it. I think markets are actually relatively calm about this situation or about this summit. And why are we not surprised? You know, as, as you taught us, Peter, what may look like a lot of white water and kicking and flailing to keep our heads above uh, the water line the markets look at that and say, well, there seems to be a – this is mostly normalcy to us. And so what we would describe as volatility is, is not necessarily uh, being reflected in the markets. Exactly. Thank you, Peter, Rachel, and Spider. And as we mentioned in today's podcast, Peter's commentary, it's a trade war, not a trade tip, 
and his other writings can be found at academysecurities.com slash macro. If you have any questions or would like to suggest topics for future episodes, you can email us at info at academysecurities.com. This is Andy Robinson, and thank you so much for listening. Looking forward to speaking to you next week.